This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. And I was wondering, can I offer you some delicious, goopy, green and tan hospital food? <laughs> yes, we're shifting away from black coffee and pie to really talk about hospital food. <laughs> which it looks so gross <laughs> it just looks like paste right yeah i'm like what is happening what and there's like a comment where they're like you know we need to get the chefs work they're the the, the cook staff working up to, to food but i'm like what what are they serving in in twin peaks joe <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah, that's so why everything is so fucked up maybe right the owls are not what they seem but also the mm. food is not what it seems <laughs> so folks we are talking about twin peaks the first two episodes of season two may the giant be with you as well as coma so terry and i have watched the entirety of season one since our last episode on lynch so we'll be filling in some of the gaps but we are going to be focusing a little bit more on where the show is headed in season two and how we're feeling about it so terry you and i were talking off mic and you're not quite gelling with what the show is putting down. I am not. And I was I, I'm a little I guess I'm a little surprised that I'm not gelling with it because I've I've known from from our conversations with you and I've known before this that like the, the mystery of Laura Palmer isn't necessarily what Twin Peaks is about, even though mm -hmm. that's I think what the audience at the time wanted it to yes. be about. Mm -hmm. I went into this knowing that that's not going to be the case and I think there's a couple things that that kind of jumped out at me over this, and I, I guess the other I guess the other problem is is that it has been a minute mm -hmm. since um, we first watched the first however many episodes to to record. Was it the first two? It was the first three. So there's been a lot of time since we did those initial first three episodes and two when I'm picking up things again. But there's a couple things that have immediately jumped out at me. One being that there's way too many characters for me to keep track of their relationships. <laughs> right. I get that this is a small town and everyone's related to everyone. But I literally had to have a, a, a fandom wiki up that had like all had the characters. <laughs> yes, because I was losing track of every single person in this show and it made me feel really stupid oh. so that's the one thing that like jumped out at me initially because i'm like i don't even remember who these characters are and i've just watched like these episodes and i'm still right. like who is this again <laughs> who is their mm -hmm. relationship to other people so there's a lot of characters and that's one thing that has jumped out at me as we finished season one and started season two the other one is that there's a lot of um very interesting moments followed by mm -hmm. a lot of what i find to be a little tedious Right. Yeah, I won't lie. When I hit play on the season two opener, I may have inwardly groaned because once again, we got hit with, oh, fuck, this was a two hour premiere. So we're watching it without commercials. It's still just over an hour and a half. So we're looking yep. at like 90 solid minutes of television. And there is a lot of fat on this episode. Like there's just a lot of meandering plot lines sequences that feel like they should be edited down a little bit and part of that i think is the lynchian charm where when mm -hmm. he and mark frost are allowed to go off the leash they will indulge in some of their wildest most innovative most farcical 
I guess, desires. But at the same time, particularly when you're, you know, watching for a podcast, and you're just trying to make your way through these episodes, it's not always the most enjoyable, because you sort of want them to get to the point a little faster. Yes. And I can definitely see we I I remember we talked about this when we first initially watched the first three episodes, where you can sort of see the trails that would lead from this to kind of the the way television is now in terms of storytelling and whatnot. You can right. see like a direct line from this to like the killing to mm-hmm. a bunch of shows, either supernatural in nature or more police procedural in nature, talk tackling like a single story over an episodic length of time. Mm-hmm. Like you can see that I'm seeing that here, but I'm also seeing a lot of, I sometimes wonder if the mystery has gotten away from from Lynch and, and Frost in these, because there's oh, moments sure. in both of these episodes where I feel as if we we're getting an exposition dump to sort of like, OK, audience, you need to catch up with us. This is what this is what happening. This is where we're at now. This is who did what to whom for how many cookies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. And on one hand, I'm like, help, it, it helped me because I was like, I don't even know what's going on at this point. And so it did help. But at the other time, there's just a whole lot of exposition dumps in these first two episodes that just makes me feel like on the mystery side of things neither of them were very they're not invested in it exactly <laughs> yeah and and famously i mean if you read up on the history of twin peaks and the the sort of behind the scenes battles that went on between lynch and frost as versus the abc uh studio the brass however you want to call it yeah you know their ambition lynch and frost was never to make the mystery the central tenant it they were mm-hmm. barely interested in it if they had had their way they never would have solved the murder and when the show became this lightning rod it became this cultural sensation abc immediately realized oh we need to get them on board with solving the mystery and i think they would have even preferred to have solved it by the end of season one which is part of the reason why we see this uptick in the audience, right? Like it was dwindling throughout season one, and then it jumps right. back up to 19.1 million, which is an astronomical number for us nowadays. But <laughs> yeah, it was clearly one of those things where I think everybody came back and thought, okay, it's the start of second season. Maybe we're going to get some really juicy developments. And there are some of those moments, but for the most part, it's like, okay, we're, we're still doing the same kind of thing. And you're you're right. So at the end of season one, Agent Cooper gets shot by an unknown assailant. And it's a question of whether or not he will live or die. That's your cliffhanger ending for season one. And then we pick up in the fall and we open with this comedically paced moment where a waiter delivers warm milk (laughs) and doesn't seem to acknowledge that Cooper has been shot and maybe he's dying. And then we segue into this moment with the giant and... It's very elliptical, typical David Lynch surreal. He's giving him these oblique references about, you know, like, look for this. I'll be back when it makes more sense and so on. All of that is really fun stuff. Agent Cooper ends up getting discovered. He goes into surgery. And when he wakes up, there's this moment where he goes, what did I miss? And Terry, I feel like this is what you're talking about with the exposition. <laughs> Dumb. Because they do like, oh, well, there was a fire at the mill and Catherine and Josie are missing. And Leo was shot and he's in a coma. And Renette Pulaski woke up from her coma. But also she's maybe still in a coma. And also Dr. Jacoby had a heart attack and he's in a coma. <laughs> Like, just all of the stuff, and they're like, we haven't had a 14 hours that was this busy since the Elk Lodge fire of blah, blah, blah in the 50s. 
<laughs> that was the very first moment and like it, it kind of made me laugh a bit because when mm-hmm. you when you like as you're watching the first season i thought the last the last episode of the first season was very like exciting in terms of like things sure. are happening the mills getting burned down people are being shot there's unseen assailants killing people there's mm-hmm. a lot of like everything that had been set up in that season seemed to come to a pass in one or in one way or another sure so it was very exciting. And then to sort of see it laid out as very matter of fact um, exposition dump, it's like, wow, that is um, a it's ridiculous. Silly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we I think we talked about it a little bit in our last episode when we were talking about uh, season one, episodes two and three. There's the recurring image, especially throughout season one. I don't think we get much of it at all in the opening two episodes of two. But there is this soap opera, Invitation to Love, right? And the characters mm. are frequently seen watching it, particularly the waitresses at the Double R Diner. And it's really meant to reinforce how silly some of this is, where you realize a lot of the things that are not tied directly to the case are actually very soap opera. And I think that that's the other piece that people struggle with is because it's so tonally different that yeah. when it gets laid out, it feels ridiculous. But then you realize, oh, if this was stretched out five episodes a week, this would, would be exactly what it would be like. I do think you've you made a, a point that is like clicking in my head is of why maybe I'm very I feel very distanced to this so far mm-hmm. is that I don't think Twin Peaks handles um, the tonal balance as well as I would expect from from Lynch because I I do think we have seen um, in our in our episodes up until now a lot of times where he balances on a knife's edge very well in terms of like this is a little bit supernatural maybe mm-hmm. or. This is like grounded. I feel like there are two different stories being told here. And one is very super serious about a casino that is pimping out young women, Mm -hmm. that there is the death of of Laura. So there's that there's a a serial killer out there. It's very super serious. The show opens with the, the body of Laura wrapped in plastic. Like this is the sort of like tone that we're initially establishing. And so we Mm -hmm. have this very serious uh, main plot, but then surrounding it is this very weird and very uh, so popery, right? Kooky, yes, with a log lady and the woman who has um, Nadine, who has the eye patch on. Mm-hmm. Who in this, in like these next two episodes, the episodes we're covering today, kind of explain why she has has the eye patch, and it makes sense. But like, there's all these but very also striking, it's ridiculous. Like, it is very oh, ridiculous. We ran away, had a whirlwind romance, and then we were we were shooting on our honeymoon, and one of my <laughs> shots hit a rock, and then bounced back and hit her in the eye, and she didn't even complain as I drove her in, and she lost her eye. <laughs> there's a super serious angle, and then there's this very kind of. Silly angle and I, mm-hmm. I feel as if they're constantly butting heads as opposed to right. turning into something that matches that, that connects together mm-hmm. i wonder a part of your struggle too because you're right we have experienced these sort of tonal shifts and the films have never really been one thing they've been many things but i think you're struggling with the ongoing 
serialized versus episodic nature of a television show where at Mm. least with a movie it's finite right you know it sort of all wraps up in about two hours and then we get to move on to the next text with a totally different story new characters but it's contained whereas this tv show often can feel very sprawling that's a good point absolutely because i do think one of the the joys of watching even when we watch some of the ones that i don't think necessarily work very well like dune there's a sort of like you're sitting down, you're getting uh, a beginning, middle, and an end, right. and it might not be what you're expecting, but it is, I'm going to take you on this this journey, give me two hours, and we'll see what happens. Whereas mm-hmm. this, it's like, give me, what, 22 episodes at, 40, at 43 minutes in season two, and give me... Minimum, yeah. Yeah. And so it's just, I, I don't know, there's, I'm, I'm finding myself struggling with that, even mm-hmm. though I knew going into it, this was going to be a wild trip i'm still (laughs) it's a wild trip you're not always loving exactly and there are moments in this that i do love very much and it's it's like little moments i loved in Mm -hmm. this last in season in season two episode two where um major briggs who's i've seen flit throughout the entire series but he hasn't really been that big of a character he all of a sudden needs to talk to cooper and all of a sudden there's like maybe aliens involved or some kind mm-hmm. of like cosmic feel of him seeing reports coming in from galaxies far away that has the the same thing that the giant was telling Cooper about the owls are not what they seem. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is interesting. This is this has me. I'm like, this is the kind of weird kookiness that I'm like, ooh, what's this about? And so there are moments of that that just really kind of grab my attention and remind me that this is a really masterful storytelling involved. And then it's surrounded by a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not so great storytelling for me. Yeah, I'll confess one of the things that I've rediscovered on this rewatch is that I gravitate to certain characters and storylines more like what we're seeing with the younger characters. So we I think we talked about her. But maybe not. It's been a while since we last chatted about the show. But uh, Cheryl Lee returns in a different role in the back part of season one. And she recurs through part of season two as Maddie. And that's Laura's cousin who is identical to her. And when she shows up, I fully burst out laughing because it is such a soap opera technique, right? You know, she shows Mm -hmm. up and she's got dark hair and glasses, but it's exactly the same actor the (laughs) hair is exactly the same in every way and you're just like this is so silly and i love it but then one of the things you have to deal with is oh you know donna is turning into a bit of a bad girl she's starting to smoke she's wearing (laughs) laura's glasses and she's losing interest in james or noticing that james is suddenly interested in maddie in part because maddie looks exactly like laura the love of his life And it's so YA in a show that doesn't seem to have any other interest in telling those kinds of stories. Like, there's maybe a four-minute sequence in the second episode of season two where James and the girls sing a song. (laughs) And it's kind of cute. It's kind of interesting. It does feel like that musicality that we've seen from Lynch and we will see from him again. But also, it just feels so out of place and almost self-indulgent where you think what are we doing right now that the self-indulgent part of that definitely jumped out at me because as i was sitting there and i was watching him play and i was like okay the fir- this is 
This is a very minor critique. I get that. Mm -hmm. And it's a very silly thing to critique. But as he is playing the guitar, he is not playing the song that is that is playing like there, there is like little riff, little riffs that happen in the song that he's just he's literally playing chord progressions and that mm -hmm. that kind of thing like bothers me and then we get this like diegetic feel of the of the the soundtrack of that moment where he is playing the guitar and they're singing but then drums come in and it becomes like this thing that's a little bit bigger than just them mm -hmm. sitting in this room and it just i don't know it it's musical dissonance, right? It is. And it just, it, I, I feel like that that moment is emblematic of how I feel about the show is that there's interesting things here, but then it's pushing up against other things that are very dissonant. Right. And so it's causing me to feel, I, I mean, not uncomfortable, but just sort of like, I don't know how, I don't feel like there's anything I can latch onto as pulling me through these episodes. And I think that is where, that is where I'm struggling because I wanted to really like this show because mm. I hear so much about it. And yet I, I constantly am finding myself butting my head against what the show wants to be. Right. I wonder too, if one of the other challenges is that we are watching these in a condensed fashion, you know, yes. I mm -hmm. watched, I think nine episodes over the last week. I was aiming Same. to do about one a day and I thought that that was going to be fine. And I was actually enjoying my experience but also it feels like a bit of grunt work and i wonder if we were watching this week to week engaging in water cooler discussions with yes, colleagues exactly. you know ooh, mm -hmm. what did you think of waldo the minor bird Ooh, who shot him Ooh, the blood got all over the donuts you know i think those kinds of things would be more exciting and more memorable as opposed to what huh why okay i guess <laughs> well, and I, I do think that that sort of highlights an issue that I have with the the sort of binge mentality that we have right now, where some services just drop, you know, an entire season, mm -hmm. and we just are we just binge the content, right? And that is what we're doing here to get caught up because we do have a whole lot to cover mm -hmm. for for this this show, and so I find myself in the same course of what of what I I'm, I run into when I binge a show is that I don't remember specific, like I remember specific moments, but in terms of, of watching it, it's just this whole blur right. as opposed to how this show and how I think a lot of effective shows work where it's an episode a week. And then as you mentioned, we get the water cooler moment. I can imagine watching this for the first time and coming into work and just having like a what was happening there? What do you think happened mm -hmm. there? And having like that sort of conversation that we don't get with this because we are covering, you know, one or two episodes and we are just trying to get through the the interconnecting episodes between the ones that are directed by David Lynch. And so we are yeah. doing that sort of binge mentality. And so I, I do wonder if that is a detriment to this kind of story that is being told. I think it has to be, particularly with mm -hmm. a show like this, which is not plot dense but it is mm. dense in terms of you know if you want to go thematic into this text you can really start to pull out a lot of different things even the things that do seem facile and silly and a little bit ridiculous there's there's been whole conferences whole academic texts written about this tv show because people can it. go into it in terms of the symbolism and so on so it's it's not just a you problem, Terry. This is uh, something that I think we're confronting where it's a challenging text. It's not always super easy and accessible, even if on the surface it does seem a little bit slight in other areas. 
One thing that um, I, made me laugh really hard was I, I do think that we see a little bit of a twinkle in, in David Lynch's eye in terms of the way he mm-hmm. stages things. Right. The thing that like really jumped out at me in, I, I believe, it was the very first episode of this season is we get a lot of donuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, there is a moment where because I, I remember in the first season there was, you know, a whole big ado about donuts and cops and donuts is is like a, a traditional you know sure. joke right and so we have a lot of donuts that keep showing up in episodes whenever they're in the the police um like conference room mm-hmm. and in this episode there were and i i had to i paused it to count <laughs> there were at least 78 donuts on this right. table and it's just like it, that made me laugh because i was like it is taking things from that first season and stretching them out to the nth degree. And I do think mm-hmm. that that is something that I might appreciate more about this as we as we continue on with the season is this idea of taking what Twin Peaks might have been in the first season and just sort of like inflating it so that it's not just a, a row of donuts. It's 78 donuts, which isn't a mm-hmm. ridiculous amount of donuts for a police office that probably doesn't have that many employees because it's a small town. And so the fact that we have that, it's just there's it makes me laugh. There were moments in this that made me laugh. And I appreciated uh, Lynch's sort of like needling. Mm -hmm. Particularly coming off of season one, which I don't want to say there's a workmanlike direction to the show, but some of the episodes don't have the same pop as when Lynch is directing it, right? And this mm-hmm. supersized premiere of season two, it does feel like a lot of callbacks to the premiere where he's allowed to just go wild. And some of the scenes make you feel like, okay, somebody needed to come in and pull him back a little bit because they are self-indulgent. But mm. also some of them, the comedy for me played a lot stronger going into season two. So I started to make a list, you know, obviously we talked about the waiter delivering the warm milk, the fact that aging Cooper survived uh, in part because he was wearing a bulletproof vest, but he had lifted it up. So he did end up with bruised ribs and contusions because he had been trying to get rid of a wood tick that got killed by a bullet. Uh-huh. as well that was a funny little <laughs> moment i was like that is such a a small little moment but very funny yeah yeah leland who is losing his mind with grief his hair has turned completely white which is a shocking moment but then when he goes in to speak with ben horn and his brother jerry at the great northern hotel he starts singing this song and other people react to the song as oh my god this guy has gone mad and instead jerry and ben start dancing along with him in the office and i thought that was just a very fun moment even though in the very next episode ben horn will say jerry i need you to kill leland because he's killing our business We have Andy getting beamed in the face with a plank of wood, which, of course, reveals a boot that is a significant clue, as well as like five pounds or something of cocaine. (laughs) And we also have a little another little moment. And that's that's the thing that I'm really liking. I like to clue in on on this show is the little things that are happening in the background. And Mm -hmm. so episode two opens with Cooper and Albert, who returns, who is like the sort of He's the FBI agent that has no no time for the quirky hijinks of a rural yes. town. And they're yeah. sitting there and they're talking and there's a barbershop quartet standing mm-hmm. behind them and they're smoking. But 
there is a song that is quietly playing that is basically a barbershop qu- quartet uh, humming in in harmony, and that becomes sort of like the diegetic sound behind this, but it's also not because they are not singing. They're sitting there smoking. And so mm-hmm. there's like these little tiny moments that I'm like, this is really kind of funny and cute and, and, and Lynchian that I love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've not really talked about the more Lynchian moments. I think the comedy is a bit telling. I think the length of some of the scenes and the refusal to trim them down is part of his trademark. But then I guess I did want to talk to you about some of the darker elements in Mm -hmm. these first two episodes, because these episodes, they both end with moments of I would say, surreal horror. So at the end of the premiere for season two, we have Renette waking up from her coma briefly, or or we get to see her dreams while she's in her coma. And we we get to see her flashing back to events when Laura is getting beaten to death by Bob in the train Mm -hmm. car. So Bob being the specter spirit. And he's... He's a very threatening figure. And then so that ends episode one. And then there's a moment near the end of episode two where we actually see Maddie envisioning Bob coming through the Palmer's uh, living room set. And he climbs over the sofa and comes like right up in the camera's face. And to me, that's actually one of the most indelible images of this entire show. We'll talk a little bit more about another one when we get to the reveal of Laura Palmer's death. But the way that the show uses Bob and kind of plays on our fear of slightly unhinged, unhoused men with long hair. Like the show wasn't afraid to traffic in stereotypes, but I think particularly the way they use this character specifically, he's just, he's really genuinely frightening. Bob is terrifying. (laughs) I think that's the thing about this being sort of like an episodic serialized television show is that it's going to end in like a cliffhanger or something that's going to want to grab you and pull you in to watch the next episode next week. And so Ronette remembering Bob murdering Laura, it was absolutely terrifying, particularly the howling moment where he where she's Mm -hmm. like she has her face like turned up to the screen and it's like horrific on it. She has a horrific look on her eyes but she's also howling and then bob is howling and they're screaming Mm -hmm. and it's it's very terrifying and i'm like wow this is this is a very striking image particularly when we're considering this was abc back in the early 90s this is Mm -hmm. like a horror movie playing out and i was i was not prepared for it to be that dark and then again when when bob is climbing over the couch when he is literally climbing over the couch towards Maddie is like, Ooh, this is uncomfortable because it is, mm-hmm. it is stuck on him and he is slowly filling up the entire frame with his body. Yes. that feels like it's moving an inhuman. He doesn't feel like a regular human crawling over this couch. And it's just, it's, it's terrifying. And I Ooh, loved it. You gave me like, shivers, Terry. All of my hair is standing <laughs> up. I think in part, there's something about the way Lynch films this. So it's a static shot, and we're leaving actor Frank Silva to do all of the heavy lifting in terms of the physical mannerisms. Like, watching someone climb over furniture to get at you is so scary. But then it also seems like like we're hiding, I think, between a table and a lamp. Like those are the two objects that are very close to the screen. So mm-hmm. he climbs over the couch and then he comes towards and even pushes past these objects that we can only partially see. But 
the sizing of the furniture yes. looks off. It almost looks like a doll's house furniture. And because that we are the camera, like we are in Maddie's point of view, it looks as though Bob is coming directly for us as viewers. Mm -hmm. He is going to mm -hmm. burst out of the TV and come yeah. at us. I honestly was expecting him to come out of my TV. It like it really <laughs> it really affected me, Joe. I was really surprised because I mean, you know, we're, we both have seen so many horror movies and I, I feel I don't know. I feel a little bit apathetic towards a lot of scares that happen. But this one like mm -hmm. really and I think it's because I wasn't expecting it. I was not right. expecting it to just continually push. And I think that is what Lynch does really well when he operates in horror is he takes things and he does not let up. He just keeps pushing it forward. And mm -hmm. so when he is literally climbing over furniture and you're right, it does the the feel there's a certain scenes in the, in these two episodes where I feel as if the set feels very small. And yes. it, the first one is when is even before the giant shows up in in Cooper's um, hotel room, the the waiter that comes in who is old and a little feeble, he mm -hmm. feels bigger than I anticipated him to be. And yes. I actually thought maybe he was the giant that was that mm -hmm. the episode kind of keys off that is going to show up because he feels very tall in this very small room. But no, yes. it is the giant that is even somehow taller than him that shows mm -hmm. up. <laughs> and so I think that that kind of sets it up. And then here again, we have Bob who feels larger than life climbing over this couch as if as if he's like a spider crawling over fake furniture, like small baby, mm -hmm. like you said, dollhouse furniture. It just it works so well. Yeah, the, the supernatural components of the show feel larger than life. And I wonder if that's maybe one of the reasons why these moments stand out apart from the more mundane things. Like, I like a lot of the characters on the show. But you know, watching Norma, who is the owner of the double R diner, basically roll over when her shitty husband, well, sort of husband, Hank gets <laughs> out of jail. I do want to have a conversation about the depiction of sex work and abuse, particularly from a female perspective, because I think it's really interesting, especially for 1990. But it's also, it's harder to be as emotionally invested in these scenes because they are that much more domestic, that much more mundane, that much more soapy compared to these moments of horror, which are so outsized you know, they they feel like they're leaping off the screen. And how do you compete with that when we're just talking about pie and coffee at the diner? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. So, Terry, you mentioned One-Eyed Jacks, which is where Audrey ends up getting mm. stranded for most of the back half of season one and these first two episodes of season two. And I mentioned that there's also domestic abuse happening with Shelley, who is another one of the diner waitresses, and her husband, Leo, who gets shot. Then we've also got, yeah, Norma, as well as her ex-husband, Hank, who is uh, the man who helps to set the fire at the mill and so on. I'm curious if you have any feelings about the way that women get depicted, especially the women who are in abusive relationships. I don't I, I don't I don't really know how to answer that. I guess I haven't really been paying attention. <laughs> 
Okay. I'll be I honest. Mean, you said there's a ton of characters, so sometimes it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on. And I, th- I honestly think that a lot of those times I am when when something is said, that is a point when I'm going back to the the fandom wiki and trying to figure out character. So Who I'm, is that? I feel <laughs> I feel very detached to a lot of the that kind of drama that's happening probably because i a am trying to figure out who it is mm-hmm. or b i'm going i'm looking at the wiki trying to figure out the the whole life story and unfortunately getting spoiled on some things that come up because right. the wiki doesn't lay it out by episode no so i do think that this show kind of is i mean it does establish the sort of like the, the dead girl that that spurs the plot mm-hmm. i do think that we, we see a lot of violence towards women in, in what we've seen so far mm-hmm. with um, either implied violence or the kind of forced servitude with the, the one-eyed Jack's area with Audrey. I'll be honest, at the very end of the first season, when Audrey is stuck in a room with her father and he doesn't know that she's there, I was mm-hmm. like, this is incredibly uncomfortable. Oh, and yeah. Then of course it's almost played off as a joke in yeah. in season at the in the first episode of season two where it's like she's wearing a mask and she's doing all these sort of like I don't know it feels it felt like a a scene in a in a in a sex comedy where it's like someone is putting up a mask or is hiding behind a blanket and being like oh no it's not me it's you know blah blah blah, blah. it's it's the way it kind of came across and so it I I felt it a little disjointed in that particular mm. reveal. Because it didn't feel like it was taking the situation very seriously. Right. Okay. I can definitely understand that. I think for me, especially coming back to this after a a fairly lengthy absence since the last time I've watched the series, Mm -hmm. I'm still so fascinated by the idea of an establishment like One-Eyed Jacks, you know, the show has done a lot of work to establish that there is this trademark Lynchian seedy underbelly beneath the not glossy veneer, but the small town charm of a place like Twin Peaks. You know, Mm -hmm. Agent Cooper spends most of season one talking about how everyone is so nice and he might even buy an investment property there for when he retires (laughs) from the FBI. But the more we learn about Twin Peaks... Everyone is being touched by this corruption. You know, there's drugs coming across the border. Women are being exploited as sex workers, but they're recruited from Benjamin Horn's department store. Right. There's there's just all of this nefarious shit going on. And part of that is very soapy. Part of it is very dark and episodic. And I guess the the thing that stands out to me particularly about the one eye Jack sequences, not just the fact that this is on the Canadian side of the border, so we're literally going. <laughs> I was going to ask if this because like I was I was trying to remember where Twin Peaks was, and so when they talk about the border, mm-hmm. I was thinking, wait, is this the border for Canada? Is it all the seedy stuff coming in from Canada? <laughs> it is, which is why all the characters like <laughs> like Jacques Renault, and I'm just like, oh well, that is an explicitly Quebecois <laughs> name. Fuck you, Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, part of it is a little bit comedic because when we finally do our undercover sting at One Eye Jacks to try to find out more about what was going on with Laura and where the drugs are coming from and so on, we've got Ed in this ridiculous wig and mustache, but also <laughs> all of the women are costumed like sexy pinup card girls. And they. When they show up, it felt like we entered a different time period. It felt mm-hmm. like we were like with uh, what were the what were those women called? But uh, 
gosh, why I just lost the word. Like burlesque? It, it definitely burlesque, but also sort of like the 1920s um flappers. Flappers, yeah. Like it just it reminded me of like a different a different time period and it felt as if I don't know, maybe I was thinking that this is trying to make some kind of comment on like 1950s idealism in mm-hmm. terms of the small town Americana, which I think oh, yes. Lynch has been fascinated with, with we saw with like Blue Velvet and whatnot. But it definitely felt like we were entering a different time with these characters looking larger than life. They're not what I would expect to see at a CD underground casino. Mm-hmm. Well, and particularly eight, the size of the establishment and the fact that no one recognizes the investigating FBI officer who has been brought in from the murder. Nobody recognizes the gas station attendant who is obviously wearing a fake wig and mustache. It's all part of the sort of patently ridiculousness of the show and its central premise. But I guess I'm just so fascinated by this idea that all of this horribleness, all of this evil, nefarious, malevolent stuff could be going on. And it's like, yeah, we just hop across the border and it's all right there, (laughs) synthesized in this club. I do kind of like that the club owner is a woman. I ended up spoiling myself looking up uh, who the actress is because I was like, she looks really familiar. She's been in a bunch of genre stuff. She starts off really strong and empowered when we first meet her at the end of season one. And then in the start of season two, when she's confronted by Ben Horn, who is the actual owner of the club, and of course, he's involved in all this organized crime, they start to hint that she is actually addicted to drugs. And I was just like, yeah. oh, come on, show. Like, it's it's frustrating from a perspective 33 years removed from when this show is doing gender politics, doing a very bad job, I think, of handling race. It just Mm. feels like it's a world removed from where we are. And I don't think we would have as many fragile, weak female characters as we do on this show. Like, I'm I'm sort of continually frustrated by the depiction of Shelley and Norma and Josie in all of their various subplots. And I think it's just, it's a, a time capsule kind of piece. Like this is how we approach female characters in 1990. Yeah. They all do need to be saved by a man is basically yes. now that you're kind of laying it out there. And I'm like thinking back about everything that's happened. Cause again, it's been a whirlwind of watching these episodes that I don't mm-hmm. think I necessarily had enough time to synthesize everything that's happened, but sure. you're absolutely right. There is a lot of damsels in distress Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I did kind of get a feel that maybe um, Blackie, which is an awkward name, mm-hmm. is... Well, I mean, I think Blackie because she's... It's the card, like... Yeah. But yeah, yes. that makes sense. It just... If, every time that, that comes up, I just it makes me cringe. But <gasps> there's like a feeling that she's queer at, at one point mm-hmm. in this. Yes. Where like she's getting, she's getting massaged down by um, a few of her female employees and... Mm-hmm. There's the moment where Blackie is basically yelling at at Audrey for for turning down the the man that came in that her of course father. was her father, yes. which is and he's like he's not my type and and she's like well what I, I think she says something like what is your type and she's like well not you and mm-hmm. so like there's the there's this inherent kind of feel that 
that maybe there is queerness there. And of course, oh, sure. the person that is in charge of this is addicted to drugs. She's queer. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of like maybe predatory lesbian kind of hinting at here. And again, I might be reaching, but that is the kind nope. of feel I was getting from that character. Yeah. And that's sort of the angle I was getting at with my racism comment as well, because I was thinking, yeah. you know, in these first couple of episodes of season two, we get a hint that there is someone who is seeking out Josie and he's come from China looking mm-hmm. for her. And I mean, I think the way Josie is presented has always been a little bit uncomfortable because she's very yep. exoticized. Um, we start to get the hint that Pete, who is actually married to Catherine, the owner of the mill, who is constantly butting heads with Josie, we start to learn that he has romantic feelings towards her and just default assumes that she's not dating anybody. But everyone treats her very much like a doll who is, you know, she's she's very weak and she needs to be protected. And we do learn that she's actually a bit more capable than we realize. Like we learn, oh, she's actually been plotting with Ben to kill Catherine at the mill so that she can make a profit and these other things. That feels like it comes out of nowhere. But between her, the black uh, girl who works with Audrey at the perfume counter, who no one seems to care is being recruited into sex work across the border. And then, yeah, all of these other women who are basically victimized, killed and or need saving. It's just like, I'm not sure about this show's depiction of women and race. To kind of compound that issue, Josie, who I find, I find incredibly striking Mm -hmm. um, as an actress. I find that she's, she commands the screen incredibly well but her character also falls into another racist trope of the sneaky asian character because Mm -hmm. you don't trust her and i i find that to be very it it makes it very uncomfortable because it's like she is she's this character that is exoticized which has been an issue with um asian culture throughout time but then she's also like she is a little bit duplicitous and she's Mm -hmm. a little sneaky and you could say that about a lot of characters on here but the fact that without doing anything she's immediately untrustworthy in the show just like there's there's moments like that that just really i find very uncomfortable particularly Mm -hmm. watching it in 2023 yeah yeah i mean you can look at any older media and obviously you're going to fall into some of these oh that has not that has not aged particularly well. This feels especially dated. And part of this, I wonder if it's also a struggle with a small town, like a depiction of a small town where, you know, I, I was just thinking, gosh, this show is incredibly white. And I do think that when it was being made, Twin Peaks is a bit of an example of how we segregated television. You know, you might have a black best friend character on a predominantly white TV show, but if you're really looking for better diversity, there was probably a black sitcom with nary a white figure in it. And it was like, well, those are in two different audiences and never the two shall meet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's one of those things where we can look at it and say, oh, if this show was done now, it absolutely would not be done this way. So we can look at it as a small measure of success. But it's also, it's just difficult to watch a show like this nowadays, because you realize, oh, this is the way we used to do it. And some of this is just not very good. One thing that I do find very interesting, and I'm curious to see if it will continue, is the the way that Lynch and um, Frost play with doppelgangers. Right. Um, yes. Particularly, I mean, we've we have like the the very 
explicit doppelganger of Maddie and and um, and Laura, Laura right? Mm-hmm. Where they look exactly alike. And yep. I think Lynch plays with that a bit. You mentioned when James is singing with them and there's like a look that is shared between the two of them. Like it's obvious that we have like a doppelganger situation here, but we also mm-hmm. have sort of like mirror imaging and characters kind of taking on other characters in terms mm-hmm. of like traits because we have we have Donna who feels like this sort of good girl and in here she's all of a sudden she's wearing you know Laura's sunglasses inside and she is dressed as like a, an adult in this one scene where she visits mm-hmm. James in the jail where it's like all of a sudden she is she comes across as like a femme fatale in a, yeah. in a noir at this she's moment closer she's, to Audrey right yes exactly she seems to be coming more like Audrey and she's smoking and it's a very funny exchange where mm-hmm. James sees her and he's like wow and then he asks her when did you start smoking and she says it helps with the tension he's like well when when did you get so tense and she said when I started smoking and it's just very <laughs> so funny <silly. laughs> it made me laugh but also like she just she's become more sexually aggressive in there yes. where she puts her mouth on his finger and like she's smoking in his face like there's it she's oozing the sexuality that her character didn't have before mm-hmm. and yet we have audrey who seemed to be that role in the in the very first season is now she's becoming more innocent right right becoming more innocent and stuck in a situation where she needs to be saved by by cooper like there's all these little things that i i find mirror mirroring each other characters mm-hmm. mirroring each other or becoming like a doppelganger of one of the characters and i find it i find it fascinating and i'm curious to see if that is something that is going to be massaged a bit more right uh without giving too much away i can tell you yes there will be at least one more example in the episode when we finally learn who killed laura got you well and i'm sorry there's this other moment too where um gosh who was it i think it was jacoby when when they're interviewing jacoby and he is explaining more a little bit of exposition about about laura but he even says she was living a two a double life two people mm-hmm. and so there's that that kind of idea of the outward presentation and the inward and we see that with the way that Lynch and, and Frost are playing with with Twin Peaks, where it's like you have the, the sort of rural town that seems like pure Pacific Northwest Americana, but then the sort of like darkness that hides underneath the surface, which is something that, you know, Lynch plays with a lot in his lot. in his in his yeah. movies. We saw that a lot with, with Blue Velvet. I, I feel like we this the show as itself feels like a doppelganger of like the presenting face and then the inside face and the way that everyone is living two different lives. And so we get to see a little bit more of that with Jacoby talking about Laura's life. But then we also see characters sort of embracing other sides of themselves in Mm -hmm. interesting mirroring sort of ways. And I I find that very fascinating. It's one of the things that I really that really jumped out at me in amongst the parts that I didn't really care for that I was Mm -hmm. really enjoying seeing. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I ended up latching onto as well. One of the things I I said, I don't love some of the teenage storylines. Like we get a hint of it where Donna starts to investigate the meal on wheels program. And you're just like, Mm. Oh God, no, please. Some things pay off. Some things don't. It's the nature (laughs) of a episodic mystery television program. It's fine. But (laughs) One of the things that I do kind of like about Donna's storyline, and even the way that she and James initially start to come together in their grief over Laura's death, but then they also seem to spread apart, particularly as Maddie shows up and kind of drives that wedge in between. I like the idea that 
these characters are fundamentally changed and sometimes corrupted by the environment that they're in. It does mm-hmm. remind me of what we talked about in Blue Velvet, as you said, with Kyle MacLachlan's character and how he starts off as the straight-laced, gee whiz, golly kid. And then by the end of the film, he's completely immersed into that gross, nefarious underbelly of the town. And I think Twin Peaks takes that and stretches it out. And sometimes you wish that that was what we were only focusing on exclusively so that we could just be in it. But I don't know that it works as a TV show as well. But yeah, it's always an interesting piece of the show to watch. That's fair. Uh, I was just going through my notes and another thing, another duplication thing that or duplicitous or mirroring thing that popped up in in a more kind of funny way is the two Mm -hmm. ledgers that Jerry and Ben have where it's like, one shows that the that the mill is turning a profit. The other one shows that it's sinking into bankruptcy. And it's like these mm-hmm. two things. And they're like trying to decide which one which is Which one's more beneficial. <laughs> which one's more beneficial? Which one do we want to put forward as the truth? Yes. And so again, we have we have people playing with this idea of like there are two sides. There are two things that are e- either true or false. But which one do we want to hold on to? Mm-hmm. And the decision is to instead burn marshmallows. Yes. <laughs> when in doubt, go with the marshmallow option. Go find those hickory sticks and apparently <laughs> eat smoked cheese pig, which I was like, what? What is this? What is yeah. smoked cheese pig? Is that a real thing? <laughs> See, I mean, we opened the episode talking about food, but Jerry always has the best food. But I think in part, it's because he's bringing food in from outside of Twin Peaks. I would probably just be sticking with the bear claws. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the bear claws. Yes. Uh so much food so much food in these two episodes so much food yes makes me hungry (laughs) all right well why don't we leave this here we're not quite done with twin peaks we'll come back uh in two episodes to wrap up well sort of laura's storyline with episode 207 lonely souls which is the second last episode that david lynch directs folks we're thinking we might skip through the rest of season two if only so that we can get back to david lynch's features but of course that just means that we will come back in a couple more episodes to talk about fire walk with me but uh terry that's not where we're going next because we have to hop back over to cronenberg but until we announce which film we're talking about if folks wanted to talk to you about how the soapy bits and the mystery bits don't entirely gel how would they get in touch? Uh, you will find me at Gaily Dreadful on any of the social media sites that still exist. Uh, <laughs> who knows? In who two knows? weeks. <laughs> um, but Joe, if people want to talk about uh, Twin Peaks' depiction of Canadian life, um, <laughs> how can they get in touch with you? <laughs> yes, come and talk to me about the Renault brothers. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, I can be reached at B Snow My Remote, and that's the letter B. And we will also thank the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show, as always. So, Terry, as I teased, we're headed back into Cronenberg country. Obviously, in part, we're doing more Lynch to not get too ahead of Cronenberg, but we're slowly catching up. We're moving into 1986 
with a film that you have actually seen before. One that I have seen many times throughout my life and is one of my um, favorite remakes. Absolutely. We are covering The Fly, and I'm so Ooh. excited to talk about that again. Yes, let's talk about AIDS. I mean, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, folks, uh, my log has a message for you. <laughs> Oh, wait, that sounded like a dirty euphemism. Never mind. <laughs> it really did. Enjoy some delicious, goopy, green and tan hospital food. There we go. Yes, we'll end with that. <laughs> the Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.